Hi, I'm Nick. And I'm Rob. We're a writing team from New Jersey with a passion for film. An aggressive, all-consuming passion. Well, whenever we see a news article we find, like, insane, uh, immediately it's... How can we make a movie out of this? Every episode we read a crazy article from different sources and tumble down our own rabbit hole. Discussing cast, crew, and plot. And then we hash out a pitch for a feature film. So, join us as we BS about movies and ask the important question... What do you got? What do you got? Ladies and gentlemen, and anyone in between, thank you for joining us. Episode 62 of What Do You Got? I'm here joined by my co host, Rob. We're excited to bring you this one. This one is, I, I, I'm going to want to talk about this one a lot, probably. Uh, your your pick here was uh, Chef's Kiss, Rob. Um, <laughs> it uh, sprang back into my head, actually. This is something I had originally encountered. Uh, years and years ago in a bathroom reader my parents had bought like like this compendium of weird trivia like like a like a little magazine you keep in the bathroom that you would read yeah it, it's oh, a book okay. to read in the bathroom and it's got all these short stories and like weird tales and facts in it that's pretty cool actually i yeah. like that i used to read i mean back before phones and stuff i would just read whatever like kids books we had a lot of it was um what was it? Dan and the Purple Crayon? Was that his name? Uh, I think I think that's it. Dan and the Purple Crayon was a big one for me. Uh, and then there was another one with a dinosaur. And I can't remember the dinosaur. But those those were those are my poopy books. Those are my poopy books. <laughs> poopy books. <laughs> Everybody's everybody had a poopy book as a kid. Come on. <laughs> um have you been? Have you been, Rob? I've been good. It's good to get back uh back rolling with the show. You know, we've been trying to make the the every 10 episodes guest thing happen, but uh, life has very much gotten in the way of that uh, yeah. in some unfortunate ways. But, you know, here we are. Yeah. Yeah. We will. As we said, I believe last episode, we will have the gifted faker on as soon as basically that schedule pulls together. Uh, you know, things things get in in between of scheduling and it, it happens and we'll uh, we'll have her on as soon as she's available and it's going to be an awesome episode. I hope it's not like waiting until like episode 70, but I don't think it will be. But, um, <laughs> you know, we got we got time to figure that one out. This is only 62. So we have <laughs> we have time. I, I, I apologize to our listeners. I am still getting over a cold. So therefore, you might hear some which I will try to move away from the mic when I do. But sniffles, uh, it's, it's bound to happen. I mean, just the weather changes. I mean, we had what we had a nor'easter on Tuesday and then yesterday it was 63 degrees. So, you know, <laughs> New, New Jersey's weird. Uh, well, the world is the world is weird. No, just New Jersey. Nothing else in the world is strange at all. It's just all New right. Jersey. You win. <laughs> That's the Jersey way. Um, this this article is fun because it is very much in the wheelhouse of my my. I don't want to say my favorite type of horror, but. It's definitely kind of what I have deemed and what uh, Megara Hope has deemed kind of teen horror, um, meaning in terms of like the anything that deals with a group of teens trying to stop an impossible force. And uh, we'll get into that after Rob delves more into the story and the article about what we're discussing today. And I'll, I'll explain a little bit more about what I mean there. So I'm going to let Rob um just jump straight into it and uh tell us a little bit about this this interesting piece that oh, he brought us i'm gonna delve so hard he's dude he's oh, he's delving uh, like you're not ready for how hard i'm gonna delve oh no no he's already delved harder than i thought he could and it's continuing to delve <laughs> <laughs> we're not well <laughs> no i'm sick that's what <laughs> we, we just discussed this god damn shut up <laughs> just shut up um, <laughs> so this is um this is a piece about um one of the more infamous songs ever written uh gloomy sunday originally written in the hungarian uh our article is from Treblezine, and they uh had been doing a series called blood on the tracks which uh is a bi-weekly series about songs with some very very dark histories this is kind of this is the one. This this song may have killed people. <laughs> this, yeah. 
So right there, or off the top of the bat, that's that's going to get into kind of my teen horror, I'm doing air quotes right now, um, genre that we've come up with. It's very much like Countdown or Truth or Dare or those movies where something happens that follow. It's kind of like It Follows, but I don't count It Follows as a teen horror. That's that's more of an indie film. But it's it's just about like an impossible force that continues to uh, follow people, right? Like Truth or Dare, they play truth or dare and the person turns into killing themselves or countdown there's an app on their phone that tells them how long they have to live and they have to figure out a way to get it off of their phone etc etc those type of horrors that's the direction i took this one and i'm excited to see i'm excited to see us put it together yeah you are visibly uh, not visibly audibly excited (laughs) about this yeah this is a video podcast Uh, so i'm gonna read the article because it's not too long Hungary has the dubious distinction of having given birth to two of the most prolific, cruel, and remorseless figures to fit the profile of serial killer, even before the term had been invented. One is Elizabeth Bathory, a sadistic noblewoman who used her status to bring cruel and horrific torture and punishment upon untold sums of victims, anywhere between 100 and 650, and whose eventual Increasingly outlandish legends saw her bathing in the blood of her victims to ensure her eternal beauty. If I remember correctly, uh, Elizabeth Bathory was, is she the basis for Bloody Mary? That's, I think no, that's bloody, true, right? No, Bloody Mary is, um, well, Queen Mary of England. Oh, okay, no, uh, okay. Burned a lot of Protestants. But Elizabeth Bathory was, or however you pronounce it in, in Hungary, um, Hungarian, um, she was the ghostly villain in did you ever see the two i think it was like 2003 horror movie with freddie um Muniz, frankie munez um stay alive no i didn't know frankie munez was in a horror film oh <laughs> dude stay alive is a fun movie it's got uh it's got jimmy simpson it's got adam goldberg in a small role it's got a couple other people i can't remember the name of um it is about a group of friends who find sort of actually this is kind of in the same exact uh, vein as the ones I was just talking about. It's about a group of friends who find a indie video game that if you die in the video game, you die in real life. And, you know, I think I saw a clip from this on TikTok. Yeah, <laughs> the final the, the final boss or whatever you want to call it in, a, in the video game is Elizabeth Bathory. It's a fun movie. It's not a good movie. It is a fun movie. Okay. That's an important caveat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's not like, it's not bad by any means. It's just an early 2000s kind of easy horror. But uh, okay, I, okay. I like that movie a lot. Yeah. The, the, the legend of the, the, you know, the bloody countess is, is, uh, I mean, people go back to that, that story of like bathing in the blood of virgins and whatnot for mm-hmm. so many different projects. It's, it's one of the, the big tropes really. Yeah, it's got um, Sophia Bush. It's got Milo Ventimiglia in a very small part. It's got Wendell Pierce. I totally forgot about Wendell, who's one of my favorite actors. So she uh, being an, an infamous Hungarian serial killer. The other one is a song. Uh, <laughs> that song, Gloomy Sunday, came to existence during one of history's bleakest moments. Written in 1933 by Hungarian pianist and composer Reso Seres against the backdrop of the Great Depression and an increasingly fascist influence in Hungary, and originally in, in, uh, recorded in 1935 by Paul Kamar. The song is something of a plea for mercy as humanity is at its worst. Ceresa's original lyrics were titled Vige and Vilniak, or The World is Ending, and reflected a growing sense of horror and despair at the state of the world. A key sample lyric translates to Meadows are colored red with human blood. There are dead people on the streets everywhere. Just to give you a frame of reference for the level of darkness that Ceres's composition <laughs> No wonder yeah, it's, it's been blamed for anywhere between dark. 17 and 100 suicides. Which, okay, similar to the top of the article where it says anywhere between 100 and 650. That's a big margin. Yep. <laughs> between 17 to over 100 suicides. That's yep. a big margin. <laughs> It's close to exponential. Um, <laughs> to hear Gloomy Sunday is to be blanketed in a tragic beauty. The song's minor key melody is at once incredibly catchy 
and ominously dark, crafted to evoke a sense of despair that transcends language. While Ceres's song became an international hit, eventually being recorded by Billie Holiday in what's now probably the most famous version of the song, one only need hear the emotion in Kalmar's gently aching voice to know the pain behind the verses. Not to mention the vintage crackle of the nearly 90-year-old song gives it a particularly ghostly quality. Yet its origins stem from something as simple as a breakup, Ceres having written the song after the end of a relationship. That the song delved so deeply into such harrowing personal feelings initially proved to be an obstacle for the songwriter in his attempt to have it published. One publisher reportedly said, this, there is a sort of terrible, compelling despair about it, about his reluctance to publish the song. <laughs> Talk about an understatement for something that may have made people kill themselves. <laughs> uh, bu- 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 bu. And yet, in spite of this, Gloomy Sunday eventually became a hit. More than that, it became a standard, recorded in many languages by countless artists, including Billie Holiday, Sinead O'Connor, Mel Torme, and Sarah Vaughan. But to hear the lore about the song, it seemed to have some kind of sinister power over people who hear it. It's not even corporeal, but it has a massive body count. Some of the various accounts of its supposed morbid misdeeds include a shoemaker whose suicide note quoted the song, a girl in Vienna drowning while holding in sheet music, a man who shot himself after telling loved ones he couldn't get the song out of his head, a woman in London who overdosed while listening to it, Sheet music was found in the apartment of a shopkeeper in Berlin who hanged himself. The list goes on, and those are only the apocryphal accounts that have managed to live on in the near century since the song came into being. It's a merciless fiend of a song, almost supernatural, like the video in the ring that you see before you die, which perhaps makes my repeated listens to the song over the past week ill-advised if it did, in fact, cause the carnage attributed to it. How about that for research? <laughs> uh, because of the epidemic of suicides in the aftermath of the song's release, and possibly because of it, Hungarian authorities supposedly discouraged the broadcast of the song. A more extreme version of the song uh, says that it was banned, and an even more extreme one was that it was banned in the US and UK, where its popularity spread. None of this, uh, according to Snopes, can be corroborated, but it's understandable if broadcasters and the government were a little on edge because of what they were hearing. And to be fair, it's a mournful song. Gloomy, even. Haha. It's not at all surprising to hear that death rock icons Christian Death later covered it, or for that matter, doom metal band Paul Bearer, whose version is actually quite stunning. But it does take a certain frame of mind to hear this song and not feel a sense of dread. Terrible, compelling despair doesn't seem at all exaggerated in describing the song. Now, that doesn't mean it's bad, it's actually quite pretty, and its earliest versions, particularly in Hungarian, are utterly haunting. In some sense, the monstrous stories about Gloomy Sunday wreaking havoc seem to be a distraction from the genuine sadness surrounding the song. The landscape in which it was released was one of the darkest in the 20th century, as prosperity declined and iron-fisted, hateful authoritarians rose. And we're in that landscape now, globally, that, well, mirrors that era in too many ways. And Hungary, up through the 80s, had one of the highest suicide rates of any country in the world, which suggests that Gloomy Sunday was merely a reflection of the despair that surrounded it, rather than its cause. Most tragic of of all, however, is Ceres himself, dying after jumping off a building in Budapest in 1968, which makes it the sole concrete connection amongst all the stories out there. Given all the baggage that Gloomy Sunday carries, it's a song that's easier to analyze than it is to enjoy. Can one simply listen to a song that's supposedly such a powerful, overwhelmingly dark presence without context? Can it be enjoyed for what it is? It can, possibly, but with the flood of information that's already been disseminated, there's more context to the song at this point, and in 2019 it can't be separated from its reputation as the Hungarian suicide song, for better or worse. To hear it, however... It's impossible to shake that lingering, eerie feeling that it leaves with you. Beware of its hitchhiking ghosts. My favorite end to an article ever made. Um, <laughs> Be sure to bring your death certificate. <laughs> you obviously listen to the song, yes? Well, yeah. Okay. I don't know. Some people might not. We, we'll, we'll definitely have listeners here, that will, which the song is linked in the article, that will not listen you know to what? it, I'm sure. I'm going to put the song in the episode. <laughs> Just make sure there's no uh, copyright strikes there. I guess it's probably public domain. 
the, the hmm. original. I wonder if the right? original Hungarian is, yeah. Um, yeah, I listened to it. It is, it's definitely in that minor key that definitely has kind of a gloomy presence to it. Um, it's, it, it is very beautiful. It's, it's a very beautiful song, especially in its native tongue. Um, because just, you know, it's, it's just a very beautiful kind of gothic song, I would say. Um, but yeah, I'm sure there are people out there that'll listen to this podcast and go, nope, not listening to that song. And I completely understand that. I understand <laughs> that uh, that kind of want to <laughs> distance yourself from something like that, right? Um, the it, it's it's like it talks about with the ring, and it talks about um, kind of it following these these people and stuff. And there's there's so much here that we can do with this. And as a huge huge horror fan. I, I, I'm very curious to know what you came up with and how we could blend our two ideas together. So I'm just going to go straight into this. Rob, what do you got? All right. <laughs> um, so I, I feel like maybe we, we went in a similar direction. Uh, you were kind of vague about your topic, but it doesn't yeah. sound too far off from mine. It's tough not to go in this direction with this. It's, yeah. it's, it's written for it. Um, so my movie is called The Stars Gaze Back, Ooh, like uh, which is part of a quote from Neil Gaiman. Uh, I chose it for a director, Lars von Trier. Ooh. My cast is Dicker Montgomery, Alia Showcats, Aldous Hodge, Stephanie Sue, and Tim Heidecker. Oh, Aldous Hodge. <laughs> I Correct. love that man. <laughs> uh, you said you said Dicker, and who are the other people? Uh... Alias Showcat from uh, Oh yep, Arrested uh, Development. No, uh, I spell her last name, but it's S H A W K A T, I think. Something. Uh, like that. Yeah, uh, Stephanie Sue um, from in okay. Everything Everywhere All at Once, and Tim Hyder. Which I'm um, okay. Hot take, real fast. I love Jamie Lee Curtis. I think Stephanie Sue deserved that Oscar more than she did, though. Oh, it's 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 acceptable. Um, yeah, I mean, I, definitely. In terms of that film, probably both both were fantastic. But I I felt like Stephanie Sue's performance was superb. Um, but yeah, I digress. Well, like I always say, the Oscars aren't about who is the best that it's year. About They're who's about who's new. Yep, you're right. And Jamie Lee Curtis, obviously, as well as Brendan, as well as Ki Hui Kwan. You know those type of things. Uh, yep. But I like your cast. Tell me, tell me about this film. Thank you. Um, so I wanted, to, I wanted to go in a bit of, um, just hearing about the way a song can influence people. I was like, okay, that's a, a good central premise. So I wanted to go with kind of a, a cult movie. Uh, oh, okay. Not in not O C C U L T, but a cult movie. Um, oh, gotcha. <laughs> um, about a uh, a rock band that begins uh, exerting probably a, a very sinister influence on its audience, especially through its, its lead singer, Dacre Montgomery. Um, I would, you know, just the, the notion of a, a song being able to, you know, quote unquote, drive people to suicide is, mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like witchcraft is what it sounds like. You know, right, I, I feel yeah, like yeah. there was probably, probably that vague implication that if people love that kind of thing, hearing about like, you know, I don't know. People wish magic was real. Sure. But it it seems like we hyper-focus on black magic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's always the negatives. Yeah. Yeah. No, nobody wants to hear stories about like, the guy touched my face and now I can see again. <laughs> like, no. Boo. We want to hear about how oh, my girlfriend boiled a wax doll that kind of looked like me. And well, now I'm losing a lot of weight and I think I'm going to die. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I feel like humanity is like at its base and at its best, kind of like neutral to bad. Like we're always think, in a bad mood. I think negativity is inherently more interesting than positivity, unfortunately, especially yeah. in terms like these. People are more interested in the man who has been cursed by an ex-lover than, like you said, the guy whose you know sight is uh, given back to him after being blind his yeah. entire life. <laughs> it, it's no, it's no wonder our generation is getting very like irreligious. And, like, yeah, I don't want to hear about nice Jesus. <laughs> you know who's cool? 
Lucifer. <laughs> he uh, has something going. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of Lucifer, of course, uh, ultimately, uh, big reveal here is is, is that yes, uh, the lead singer has made a deal with the devil or a devil. You never really know proxies. Okay. But uh, the rest of the cast um, makes up the rest of the band. Um, I had had um, Aldous Hodge as the uh, lead guitar player. I had uh, Elias Shokat uh, as um, the bass player. Mm-hmm. And uh, Stephanie Sue as the drummer. Uh, Tim Heidecker nice. being their manager. Um, Who's Tim Heidecker? I know the uh, name. Tim and Eric, awesome show. Great job. Oh, okay. And uh, um, what do you call it? Us. Oh, okay. Yep. This is the white neighbor. Um, he had a good time. Fun fact, movie. the girls who played the twins of uh, the neighbors in that were the girls who played baby Emma in Friends. Oh, Ross and Rachel's daughter? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those Except are... before or after they were on a break? Oh, it was way after, dude. Come on. <laughs> I don't know. I just wanted to say they were on a break. <laughs> they were on a break. Um didn't you do a whole podcast one time about whether or not they were on a break? <laughs> we so me and uh, Rob Aiken tried to do a podcast. We put out two episodes, and that was it. We just we didn't do anything else. It was the whole podcast was about friends. The first episode was about who who each character should have ended up with instead of who they did end up with, uh, and then the second episode was were they on a break? <laughs> uh lost to time this, this solid <laughs> yeah. this solid gold podcasting this probably would have been almost 10 years ago oof i think cuz it was probably like 2014 2015 that we did that i think i remember you guys doing it but i yeah. i don't think i lived here i think i was just around on recording day i don't remember cuz i feel like we did have the studio so you would have lived there obviously i i'm not positive but it we we used to we hosted it on my film website above the film back when that was the thing um and uh yeah we got two episodes out and that was it <laughs> we've been trying to do something about movies in our lives for a long time and it's weird for that the this, entire this time we've known each other yeah <laughs> and then it, it's kind of finally actually turned into a real thing with this uh it's 62 episodes now the hell of a thing uh it is what was i saying uh uh so that's that's who the the cast is is kind of filling out in terms of what the band is uh you know i want them to kind of start in that that nebulous place where like they're not nobodies but like they still have to bust their asses just to put food on the table as a band sure like they're starting to be known like they're sort of underground yeah like they have a following uh but they got to tour relentlessly just to like you know have it be a thing and does this Uh, take place present day for you yeah present day okay um because I did want phones to be a large part of it in terms of people. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm a kind of an old fuddy-duddy about these kind of things. But anytime I go to a concert, I'm like, why are you looking at the show through your phone? Oh, my God. I can't stand it. That fireworks. Anything where there's a fucking show. Watch it. Watch it. I'm like, you, you don't need a video. No one else needs to see you. You just experience you, it. You're never going to watch that video again. Yeah, someone professional is definitely recording this. Yeah. Which you can share on social media later. But just the now notion of it, of like everyone, need, I need to share in this clout. Yeah. Uh, of this cool thing that's happening. Like, it's like, that's just a really present. Yeah, that's a really easy way to become influential. Oh, yeah. Is, is to get people to do that. So I figured like if, uh, you know, and especially Tim Heidecker gets concerned about this. Dagger Montgomery starts doing really weird things on stage. Okay. Uh, increasingly insidious shit. Like it starts out being like, oh, he's trying to get attention and like shares on social media. Like he's bringing people up and doing weird things. But then it like sort of starts surpassing Ozzy Osbourne and Alice Cooper. In, okay. Like, this is probably not okay. I think <laughs> we should not go back this. to the hotel last night. Because <laughs> like, uh, the police might be looking for us. Like, I don't think you can do that to animals. Or like, <laughs> did you actually stab that guy in the leg from the crowd? Like, but like their fans are so into it that the guys like the adrenaline's kind of rushing through, right? Yeah, and everybody's got their phone out, and it's it's going all over Twitter and Instagram and on TikTok and everything, and this is good. Um, and you know, Daker starts like taking more and more control of the songwriting process. 
mm-hmm. to the point where like I think people are bringing ideas to the table. It's like albums already written, um, <laughs> and it's you know he wants to make sure these concerts go viral because he's basically weaving spells into songs. Hmm. Uh, and so that's my movie. Uh, Tim Heidecker is definitely going to die uh, for asking <laughs> too many questions. <laughs> um, I think uh, protagonist wise, I was thinking about going with with Aldis as the uh, uh, you know as the guitar player. I, I like the sort of back and forth of who are the most influential, popular, or cool member of a band that people focus on. There's right. almost always that dichotomy between it's it's either the lead singer or it's the guitar player. Yeah, and then the drummer um, and bassist are kind of like secondaries, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, you know, very, very rarely is someone at the front of a band playing bass. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like Paul McCartney is one, but like, you know, also in the band was John. Yeah. <laughs> so Mark like, Hoppus, you know. but you also have Tom. Yeah. Uh, although, you know, I did read something weird once that when the Beatles first came to America, far and away, Ringo was the most popular Beatle. Really? Yeah. I think people were just like, he oh, seems okay. really chill. <laughs> <laughs> that one seems nice. I like him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I'm getting from your pitch. I'm getting green room vibes. Is that on purpose? You know, green room did pop into my head. Okay. Uh, also, oh shoot, yeah, Alia Chokat was in green room. Oh, she was, wasn't um, she? Yeah, I think she gets murdered by a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Is it but murder yeah. if it's a dog? Like, yes. I yeah, we so. execute dogs, just... man. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't sure if it was like I could get dog slaughter. I don't know. <laughs> dog slaughter. <laughs> it's not manslaughter. Second degree. <laughs> Second degree dog slaughter. You know how it is. Oh, man. <laughs> Dogs don't get a trial, man. We just put them down. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think dogs should get a trial. I think um, I just vaguely quoted Rorschach. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's, yeah, Green Room is, is definitely an influence. Um, yeah, God, I love that movie. To oh, be honest, it, you movie. know, uh, Anton Yelkin probably would have been in this if he was alive. Yeah, he, he, I feel like he would have been in a lot of our pitches if, if he yeah. were alive, which I would still like to do at what some point in episode where we get to utilize uh, actors who have passed, you know, whoever that, yeah, movie, I'd love to do that. Actors from the 40s, 50s, you know. And, like, literally mash them up, right? Like, we can yeah. have, like, Cary Grant and Heath Ledger in a film together. <laughs> I can't wait to see you do backflips to try and put Jack Lemmon in a thing. Oh, I don't need to do... I don't need to do backflips. Whatever the thing is, Jack Lemmon can be in it. It's that simple. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care what the role is. Jack Lemmon is it. <laughs> okay. he's Guys, he's got a knife. He's got... <laughs> <laughs> um... So yeah, I guess the denouement of of the film I thought would be sort of a musical duel, in effect, of of trying to take the most influence in the band. Like I'm I'm influenced by this story that um. So George Harrison was married to this woman named Patty. Eric mm-hmm. Clapton decided he was in love with her, and this became like an obvious thing. He was really good friends with George, but like it was it got very awkward. And, uh, you know, they, they're hanging out at, at George Harrison's house and John Hurt's there for some reason. And John Hurt told a story later. He's like, they both got up and started playing guitar and visibly started dueling with each other, like on the guitar back and forth. And I'm like, oh, I'm watching people literally battle over oh, the love ten- of woman. It's Tenacious D. He kinda, <laughs> yeah. Like destiny. Yeah. Like, I'm watching these two men do this back and forth. And I'm like, if Eric wins, does he... Does he get George's wife? <laughs> uh, and he later married George's wife, so I guess he won oh the duel. <laughs> so, like, that sort of vibe is, to it where I'm Clapton like... Clapton the one that stabbed George Harrison at his home? <laughs> no, thank God. <laughs> Clapton's the one who drank two bottles of vodka a day for eight years. Um, That's not that long. Uh, Guarantee you Jack Lemon did more. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's possible, yeah. But think about <laughs> it, two bottles, Jesus. A day, um, yeah, Jesus. Yeah. I, I hate vodka. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, just I, I, that notion, of course, you know, it's John Hurt telling the story, so he, he ascribes to it this almost Greek mythology aspect. Oh, but sure, yeah, I yeah. was like, yeah, tapping into that, that's a really cool idea. Just, like, how do you... 
how do you show you know uh, someone taking more influence in a band and i think we could do that sure um to kind of overcome that that influence and I think that probably like, well, contract's broken by Dicker, <laughs> you know, dragged into hell uh, through the stage. While on they, stage. Yeah, perfect. But they, yeah. but they think it's, you know, everybody again, this is the last, like, everybody it's get your phones effects. out moment. Yeah. Yep. Uh, as uh, as he's dragged down to hell. So that's, that's my movie, The Stars Gaze Back. Nice. Love it. Uh, so, Nick, what do you got? All right. So there was a very easy route I could take this in terms of director, which would have been like James Vaughn or something. Uh, I went with someone who's I, about a year and a half ago, I would have said less known, but now he's done X and Pearl. Uh, Ty West, one of my favorite horror directors. Uh, yeah. um, he he's was definitely, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's definitely mainstream now. Um, my film is directed by Ty West. Ty West. Uh, it is called Crescendo. Um, the, premise of my film is very simple uh it's about a film composer who's working on a new horror movie and while he's working on this horror movie he comes across a song that he can't escape so as post-production continues on the film the dread that the song causes continues to overwhelm our main character he's overwhelmed by the minor key and the the subconscious he subconsciously continues to incorporate the song the tune the tone into the film's score as that goes on the song is following him and other people on the film set um Hmm. so basically after people hear the full song they do die whether it is a suicide a freak accident i haven't figured that out yet there is a sort of corporeal uh being that appears at song's end so similar to like uh, samara with the ring um okay there is a character you know that very slenderman-esque very uh babadook something you know something urban legendy like that uh that character tom slenderman (laughs) the that character is obviously going to be played by javier botet um for those of you who don't know the the biggest one you can think of for him is uh scary stories to tell in the dark he was the the big toe character um my my cast is uh my lead character in a horror movie uh which i'm very excited for is andrew garfield as my film's composer um because i want to see andrew garfield descend into madness again (laughs) Um, the director of the film in my movie is Mark Ruffalo. Uh, Jodie Comer plays one of the actresses. And then I also have Andy McDowell rounding out my cast as an older actress who's not in the movie, but dealt with something similar on a film set back in like the seventies or something. Okay. So it's the idea that he's writing, he's composing the score for a horror film while a horror quote unquote song is basically running amok through production and killing people. And the film's composer can't get over the fact that he's subconsciously incorporating that song into the film's score. Um, That is my, that is my, I like that. That That feels very David Lynch. Yeah. It's, which is interesting because I'm not a David Lynch fan, Um, but it's, it's definitely got that kind of like, teen horror aspect where it's something is following these people and how do they stop it um countdown is a very interesting one because it is about a you know a group of people who download an app that tells you when you die it's like countdown clock and they once it's on your phone if whenever you die it it will happen so you know people download the app and it's like six days or Hmm. some people download the app and it's like 60 years Hmm. um it's the idea of something following you throughout so i wanted to utilize the, the the score of this film is very reminiscent to me of our Collier Brothers film, where okay. the idea was that the score was kind of a badly tuned piano, and it kind of made you feel just a little bit uneasy as these kind of like plucked piano chords yeah. are playing rhythmically. And I, I, for me, the the score of the film is probably the most important part because he has to develop the score for the film within the film that is also going to be the score of the film. Oh boy! Wow, we're getting <laughs> we're getting metatextual. 
It's a multiverse. <laughs> I think it's got to be Hans Zimmer. <laughs> so you know what? Yeah, I I was thinking about who I would actually because we've never cast a composer, right? Um, and I wasn't really sure who we'd go with. It's not. It's for me. It's not Hans Zimmer. It's not John Williams. It's not those huge ass names. Um, the who did uh the score for. Who does honestly? Who does James Wan scores for like Insidious? Who did that? Because I'm uh, feeling very sure. similar to to those that style of film. You know the the creepy song in Insidious that plays throughout. That was what first oh, came Italian to mind. When I, <laughs> yeah, that was what first came to mind when I read this. Um, the composer is Joseph Bashara, who's done basically every James Wan movie. Uh, hmm. The Nun, Annabelle Conjuring, Insidious, all of those. He's also done American Horror Story. That's that's the. He also did a Mortal Kombat Annihilation. <laughs> uh, uh, that's the style that I would like to go for. It's it's just that the film's score is very pertinent to the film itself, especially for a horror movie. The score really needs to, you know, any I feel like anyone that Roger uh, Robert Eggers has worked with, you know. Like something along those lines. It's something a little bit more. I don't, is innocuous the right word? I don't know. But that's that's my film. That's what I want to do. I want to make that. <laughs> I mean, I like the movie set setting definitely to begin with. Um, yeah, I like the idea of it being a film composer working on a horror film. Mm-hmm. And it is a horror film. I don't want to go like scream meta. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't want it to do that. Yeah, but it's just the the concept of as he's because because you know the song is what is kind of like torturing him, but he still has to do his job and actually write a score for a horror film. So he has to write something weird and you know ethereal, sort of. Okay, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Well, now we got to mash him up. Yeah, I think. Well, honestly, both of our things. Well obviously focus around music right so there's there's got to be an easy way our whole article is about a song that kills you um there's got to be an easy way for us to blend these two concepts together whether we just do a film composer or it is a band more more akin to like maybe trent reznor you know like someone from a band who is composing the film it could be it could be a movie about about musicians it could be that too. It could be that too. We're uh, almost, uh, still a fiction, though. I would say not like a documentary. Yeah, yeah. Because I think the documentary we get too much into the vein of like, I don't know. It, it's it, a, a a music documentary. A horror music documentary feels strange to me. <laughs> It's a, it's a little too uh, a little too much. Yeah, I, I think there's a little too many aspects to that. <laughs> we did way too much. <laughs> um, so I think yeah, I think what we could do is maybe we utilize one of you know what? What if we do like base it off of a fictionalized Trent Reznor, someone who came from a band and is now composing for film. Mm-hmm. And it's a horror film, and the band is still a part of our film. The reason he has to do the movie, and you you've painted this this image of someone who is somewhat unwillingly composing, yeah, uh, is because of a, a a deal he cut for his band to get famous. Now he has to pay back into it. Oh, okay. So you're you're thinking like the film composing is just him to get a paycheck because it was part of his contract. Like the band now is able to play a live gig somewhere. And in order to do that, part of the contract was for him to compose for the film. That's the mundane aspect. We could also do the supernatural aspect of he cut a, a deal with the devil for the man to oh, become okay. famous. And this entire film production is made up of people uh, who have done the same in one way or another. Oh God. And so everyone been, in the production is. <laughs> yeah. And they've all been called to contribute to this film to pay back. That could be a really good reveal, I would say. Yep. 
that's a good like, reveal like as we like think he's the only one but yeah and then you find out that like the lead actor the director the producer the writer they were all like yeah. no I, I have to be here it's court mandated yeah. <laughs> we all were compelled to be here <laughs> it's hell mandated yeah. <laughs> um so yeah I, li- I like this track that we're on why why have they all been compelled as part of their contract to work on this movie Let's focus on the composer first. Yeah. Because I, I don't think it should be something as simple as this will help me. It's not it's not a Robert Johnson's crossroads. It's not a this will get me famous. I don't think no, it's no. that simple. Um, I think it's got to be something more. More, maybe even more mysterious. What if we maybe don't even delve too deep into the why? Hmm. Okay. That kind of keeps that mystery and a little bit more of the unease around the horror aspect. If we actually don't know why he is compelled to write the music for this for this film. Yeah, yeah. Like like somebody like his manager or something. It's like you really don't seem to be enjoying yourself. You were not happy to take this in the first place. Yeah, like why like, are you still on? doing it? Like I can yeah, get yeah. you out of this contract. And every time that his manager says that, he's like, no, 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 no. I cannot be removed from this contract. You know, yeah, it has to get done. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Cause unanswered questions are always the best ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's also one, it's easier for a writer, but two, it's, it makes it more interesting for people to be able to come up with answers themselves. You know, it's, oh, yeah. It's kind of the it's kind of the interesting dichotomy between this is a little bit of a tangent. It's the interesting dichotomy between Inception and The Dark Knight Rises. Nolan's Inception, the purpose of the ending is to be open-ended. The purpose of Dark Knight Rises is not an open-ended ending. The problem is that Inception came out first. So when people saw Dark Knight Rises, they were like, "Oh, he's doing the same thing as Inception. Bruce is Bruce Wayne really still alive? Is he really there with Selena? Yes, he is. Dark Knight yeah. Rises should have come out first because then Inception wouldn't have been a problem for people to understand the ending to Rises. Yep. <laughs> like so, people love doing that theory. Like, ah, uh, Alfred's just kind of like seeing what he wants. To... No, he's not. Nope, nope. He's seeing Bruce. That's the. Right it's the this is not Inception. It's not. <laughs> Just because it's kind of bad, you're just trying to make it good. Like, I get it. There's an extremely unnecessary coda to the film. But yeah. You don't have to try yeah. and make it good. Someone else made it, and they made it what it is. So, yeah, the idea of being able to keep it open-ended is just more interesting from an audience's standpoint. And it also keeps the di- mm-hmm. uh, the dialogue going, you know? So what is what is the the point of opposition in the film? I think uh, from um, everyone's I, perspective or from the main characters. I guess, I guess from everyone's perspective, because like for my, for my band pitch, it was, you know, the rest of the band and the manager trying to, to stop the undue influence of what's happening. Right. So what is, yeah. What is our point of contention here? Um, because him just dealing with psychological problems only gets us, to a certain point. Yeah, yeah. Um oof. I think maybe hmm, not I'm not well not to try and jam you know it just jam some drama into it, but I uh, perhaps you know just the the notion of a film set being composed of so many different people. Mm-hmm. Like his his score you know, they're trying to do something with it where it's almost like uh, as he composes, they're playing things live on set to help inform the performances. Okay. Like, okay. The, like uh, not like on a full scale, like everything uh, in Les Miserables is, is sang right. live on set. Yeah, yeah. Like, that but, was there's, but there's there's thematic sounds. Yeah. Because then like that's why they have him like on the film set as opposed to a composer who's really just at home and then at the, yeah. at the orchestra studio uh, is, is they want like, you know, today we're doing this scene. So I need you to finish this because I want to play it during the scene um, mm-hmm. to get the actors in the right mood. And like, he's having trouble meeting that sort of uh, the, the continual deadline of like, usually I get to see a finished film product when I'm doing scores and stuff, mm-hmm. but like here they're having me do it 
semi-live while it's like live a, yeah yeah um and i don't i don't know the full nuance of how it's going to look in the shots and all these things usually you just get to sit down with like the draft of the film and yeah and it's literally it improvised music during the scene yeah and like sometimes they're not appreciating what he's doing or like there's an odd counterpoint to like well like this is you're going very minor key and this is not a very down scene yeah he's like, well no, it's what is supposed to happen in this scene he's never like <laughs> arguing on behalf of the art I think mm-hmm. like he's always like, well, this is what it's supposed to be. What? Oh, you know what? what? It has to be. I like that. What if it's not like he's arguing on part of the art? What if it is literally that to him, it's kind of already been created and it's not his decision? Yeah, like I can't change this. Yeah, like, like this is not. this is what it is. I didn't come up with this. This is just yeah. how it happens. And the whole so cast like, and crew think he's a fucking prima donna. Yeah, exactly. They all think he's like some crazy, like oh, artsy fartsy, like oh, it's happy. But no, it's literally he's literally just a uh, conduit for the music to actually, and it, and that we don't even mean that as a an analogy. The there is a you know a mystical force at work that is actually just using him as a conduit Mm -hmm. it's not like someone trying to make an interview really interesting you know (laughs) (laughs) that's true so all right so okay so now we've got we've got the rising action of it essentially what what is our climax because we could do something really left field what did you have in mind or nothing in mind yet? <laughs> nothing, nothing yet. I'm trying to figure out what exactly the path we want to take with this is. Like, you yeah. Know. Cause it shouldn't be as simple as <sighs> we have to do something with the song itself or the music, not the song. The music itself has to actually, be, we need, we need a body count. It's a horror movie. Yeah. So we need to find a way for there to be a body count for this. Um, and it is shouldn't, it, it it can't just be people on the film set because at some point that film set's going to fucking shut down. Yeah. Although is the the climax of the movie, someone important uh, dying in an accident on set. And that brings the movie such notoriety that it it becomes a widely popular release because people have just got to see this movie that killed someone. And the music is all part from like start to finish of of just kind of like weaving this influence on people or weaving the spell on people. It's it's interesting. I was thinking more in turn with the idea that the film maybe does get shut down for a little while and the composer is freaking the fuck out cuz he has to finish it. He cannot have the film shut down. So Ooh. Like the 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 idea that it's shut it's like don't worry we, you're still going to get paid like blah, blah, blah. it's not about that. Like this film needs to continue. So that kind of keeps our main character, our composer more in tune with the audience, not really knowing what's going on. Right. Something that we don't fully explain. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Like, why is this, you know, why is he so flop sweating about this? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously there's something else there. Um, how do we I'm trying to think back on horror films we've pitched. The last one I remember is the New Orleans one with the uh, yeah, was was the cemetery or something like that. Yep. yep. With the uh cause they bury the bodies above ground. Yeah. Um I'm trying to think of how we can get more <laughs> I'm trying to think of how we can get more death in our film <laughs> that is not directly like so we have to have it that it's not just people in the production right so we have to have our composer have a personal life yeah friends family um things like that so that those people can then be in danger oh yeah definitely um that's where that's where originally Jodie Comer came in for me was that she mm-hmm. was like the love interest or something. Or I mean, just this like is you know a big like on location shoot. Like uh, you know, people tend to move out to wherever it is. Yeah, temporarily. You know, if they're filming in Hungary, say people get apartments in Hungary for these things, so they can have a lot of their personal lives with them. Yeah, that, and I feel like it needs to be an interesting location. It needs to be something different do we go somewhere like hungary where it's like for some reason the first thing that popped up to me was like the outskirts of las vegas like something very weird 
some place you wouldn't expect for a horror movie to take place. I don't know. I mean, not, um, not a city, not like New York or, you know, London. Maybe like, you know, California's got a lot of ghost towns. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're they filming on an old ghost town. Like there's this place they, uh, they filmed part of the, uh, the movie tenant at this place called Eagle mountain, California. Mm-hmm. It's because it's got it was supposed to be a mining town, so it's got these huge, empty concrete structures that are just kind of like shells. Like they didn't really finish the buildings. If you remember okay. at the end, of, at the end of Tenet, it's where the big fight at the end of the movie happens. I actually haven't seen Tenet yet. Yeah, weirdly uh, enough, I was going to watch it the other night. I didn't. Yeah, I love <laughs> it. It's it's I like sort of like weird time movies. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I I enjoy most of Nolan's things. I haven't seen Tenet and I haven't seen Dunkirk. Oh. Yeah, I need to watch both of those. Yeah, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna send you a, a picture, kind of like what the general architecture at Eagle okay. Mountain yeah. looks like uh, in the chat here. There it is. Um, it's 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 weird and kind of off putting. That's hey, that that works perfectly for this film. <laughs> yeah, so like you know, there's kind of like those little sort of trailer cities that develop when you're out, kind of on the sure. road sites. So that's like yeah, a lot of people can be around. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's giving me sort of Fallout vibes. Yeah, kind of. I can see it. And uh, just as you approach, there's like these huge concrete arches for like what have been the underpass of highways or something like that. Yeah. It's a very weird place. Um, oh, I really I, I, Mines freak me out. <laughs> so, uh, oh, yeah, dude. They're terrifying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, perfect. The The one shot of like the... the little neighborhood of houses with the background of the giant sand dune. Yeah. That's perfect. Like that's where they end up putting everybody, right? Yep. So that would be like where the cast and crew is staying. That's, that's fascinating. That's a great location for a horror movie. They can't really leave. They're in the middle of a desert and it's a community of only the people working on the film and their very close loved ones. Yep. So you have it going in a little community. Yeah, you have it going through all these small little shacks almost. Like these are small little ranch homes, I guess. Yeah, kind of those rambler style. And what was this in in real life? This was a mining community, so these are just abandoned places now. Yeah, um it's it's been used for uh movies like Tenet, uh for it used it as like an old abandoned Russian site for I I remember uh, you know, fighting at the end. Top Gear has like done driving segments out there a few times. Uh, okay, I remember seeing a horror movie within the last couple of years that took place in an abandoned town like this, and I can't. I think it was a found footage film, but that's exactly the the route we're looking to go. Hmm. I like that. I like that a lot. Tis weird. So, Tis weird. <laughs> I think then we need to figure out. Like you said, what's the climax? I mean, where does this... Oh, God, there's like an abandoned diner and shit. That's awesome. <laughs> yep, it's a ghost town. I love ghost towns. I want to go... I wish there... I wonder if there's any in, like, Jersey. There's there the are. one that's in... Uh, not Philly, but PA that was based on Silent Hill, right? Yeah, but there are still some people there. Oh, really? Yeah. Whenever these things happen, there's always, like, a few people who just will not fucking move. Yeah. Like the people who wouldn't leave the Chernobyl area. We should totally take a trip out to one of these. Yeah. Where's yeah, this one? Just in like California? Lists. Yeah, you can find like lists of ghost towns. <laughs> sure. We should do that. We should do that. And then we should record a podcast episode there. <laughs> Although, uh, you know, New Jersey is tough because we're such a developed state. <laughs> yeah. These shots are just really cool. All right. Where are we yeah. taking this? What are we doing? um we should oh we should i want to actually link these shots into the the podcast so make sure we keep that link you sent me yeah (laughs) um do uh, do we need to discuss what the film they're working on is about or is that not really important right now i think in broad strokes yeah we should talk about it Um, because it should be a horror film set in maybe an abandoned town like this yeah Oh yeah, definitely. Um, they're working on a movie with sinister undertones. Um, yeah, it's about music. I like the idea 
kind of meta textually that it's about a band playing this like secret concert at an abandoned site. Yeah, for sure. Like an, it's yeah, it's an it's just an underground concert area that this band has, uh, you know, they've been invited to perform at and they don't mm-hmm. really know what's going on. But there's obviously something underneath everything happening. Yeah, <laughs> we could we could use it for a misdirect too. like, you know, the the the, the story of the, this movie is that like they encounter, I don't know, cannibals. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, something, but like that's not what we do with the movie at all. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I like that. Hills have eyes, kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. Um. All right. So you know, it's the day we're filming the finale of the film within the film. Yeah. Uh, I just said film too many times. (laughs) (laughs) We're filming the finale of the film within the film in the film scene. (laughs) And you know, now production has resumed after a very serious accident on set. Yeah, composer has partially lost his mind because of the delay, uh, and we get to, we get to this big number that closes out the film. So what happens that number? Hmm. Does it? You know what? Let's let's simplify the question. Does the film get finished? I guess I guess if if this is the last scene in the movie, then yes. Yeah. Because I'm trying to think of, because I still like the idea of it being kind of a corporeal being that follows you around as you hear the music. So we can see it from his perspective. You've seen It Follows, right? Oh, yeah. You know how in a lot of the shots of It Follows, you can't tell if someone is actually being the being or if it's just someone in the background? Yeah, no, that's what spectacular I'm, use of deep, uh, deep focus. And... Yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I'm picturing here, where we follow the composer and we see someone in the background of the set, and you can't tell if it's a background actor or if it's actually the creature or whatever it is. You know, keeping an eye on our composer, like real time, as he's making his way through the set and watching the finale being filmed, people are disappearing. Yeah. Like slowly but surely, like no one's operating the lights anymore. Yeah, no yeah, yeah. This, kind of one by one, and that could maybe become the mythology of the of the film within the film. And what if it's we like, do something? Nobody came back from the desert. There's no bodies, but we don't know what happened to everyone in this film set. Then there's one shot that I have an an image for where off in the horizon of the desert, towards the the very end of the film, our film. Um, it's a night, you know, the final shot they're filming is a nighttime shot. Uh-huh. And off in the distance of the desert, since we do have film lights up for the films that they can see out in the dark, just a line of people that are standing there. They're the people that have been lost on production. Ooh, that's creepy. Yeah. You just see like a line of all the people that have gone missing standing there, not moving at all off in the distance. Yep, one by one, it's this longer line, sort yeah. of that dance macabre that happens at the end of the Seventh Seal. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, then, do we okay. do a sort of like, can you finish a film that way with like a cut to black where there's actually no finale? Just like, yeah, you just this huge empty set and like the camera is still rolling and we can hear it. And like, you know, yeah, the playback track is going, but like there's nobody there except for the composer. Yeah. And he's alone. Everyone else is gone at this point. You can yeah. see multiple people, not the entire cast and crew, but you can see multiple people who have gone missing just off in the distance standing in a line. And like now, and it's a lot of people by the end of it, too. So it's like almost ringing the, the whole hillside there. Yeah. Yeah, and he's just sitting there still trying to pluck strings on his violin or something. He's not even focused on them because he doesn't see anything else anymore. Yeah. That's kind of a good little tag at the end. Yeah, it is. I like it. Oh, there's pinball machines in this place. (laughs) (laughs) I got you really distracted with this ghost. <laughs> you camera. did. You did. You should not have sent this to me. It's so cool. There's like <laughs> nine pages of photos for this thing. Yeah, it's it's a pretty dope place. I think that's a good ending, though. We have it where it's literally his mind is so far gone at this point that even the dead that he's seeing don't matter to him. He is and now just, just enveloped. On his knees. Yeah. And like in the sand just like drawing out lines 
for he's uh, like, music notation. Yeah, and, and he's like he taking going. he's like taking a small rock from the desert and just kind of like hitting it on his like whatever instrument, violin or something, so that he's making mm-hmm. these sounds. Oh, and yeah. that's how the film ends. Yeah, I like it. Just like weird what happened. Yeah. I like it. I want to keep your title. I want to keep the stars gaze back because that works on two different levels since it's a film about a film. <laughs> yeah, I, I like I like it. It sounds creepy out of context, but like it in does. context, it's nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the full quote is a philosopher once asked, are we human because we gaze at the stars or do we gaze at them because we are human? Well, pointless, really. Do the stars gaze back? Now that's a question. You said that's gaming? Yeah. I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> awesome. I mean, I think we have, there's definitely some workings that we would have to like flesh out and stuff, but I think we have the makings of a film. So we need to choose a director before, mm-hmm. we, before we sign off. I could go either way on both of our directors. What's the closest mm. to like a horror that Von Trier has done? Would it be like, I, I want to say melancholia is like the closest to a horror he's probably done. <laughs> the movie about depression that ends with a, a meteor. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not even a meteor. Isn't it like a second earth that crashes? Oh down? yeah. It's, it's a, a, a rogue planet uh, yeah. slammed into Darth. I mean, antichrist, but. Um, oh yeah. Antichrist. Dogville's terrifying. <laughs> he's done some fucked up movies. <laughs> yeah. His movies are weird. That's, that's probably why I thought of him. Um, well, the house that Jack built, but ugh. I didn't see that one. That's the one with uh, Matt Dillon, right? Yeah, it's fucking gross. Is it? Yeah, let's he, go with Matt Lars Dillon von Trier. plays a serial killer. Let's go with Lars von Trier. I still want Andrew Garfield as the composer. Down for that because my man can go insane. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, we can basically keep everyone else. I would say Dacre could be or. Dacre or Aldis could be one of the good leads. I think Aldis is actually crew. I feel like he's like lighting. <laughs> I like that. He's, a, he's a, like a best boy. Yeah. Dacre. We bring it's, on. It's so uh, weird that that's like a very official, very important job title. Right. Best yeah. boy. Like you're like the number one electrician on a film yeah. set. And you're the best you're the boy. Best boy. <laughs> We saw Scream 6 the other day, and uh, one of the, I can't remember what the, I don't remember, I thought it was Best Boy or, or Key Grip or something like that, but the guy's name was actually Kevin McAllister. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, no that way. either sucks or is awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's it's like, a, it's a good way of like filtering out people you don't want to be friends with. Yeah. Of like how they react to your name. Funny enough, I feel like this could also very well work with Ty West because it feels sort of like, I would say, some of his earlier films, like The House of the Devil. It's got that kind of vibe to it. I didn't see House of the Devil. I think the first Ty West movie I saw... Hmm. House of the Devil was kind of his first big one, I would say. The first, the first Ty West movie I saw was uh, The Sacrament, uh, the one he did that's like Sacrament's Jonestown. great. Yep. Sacrament's great. Did you ever see The Innkeepers? Uh, no, because I, I think that came out before Sacrament, right? It did, yeah. So The Innkeepers is probably still my favorite film of his. As much as I love X Ooh. and Pearl, The Innkeepers is an awesome movie. It's um, It's got Sarah Paxton, and it's, it's just about these two people who work at a um it's called the yankee peddler inn in a small town and it's being shut Hmm. down it's like their last weekend open and they're trying to investigate for uh hauntings because they're the uh what do you call them they're the people at the front desk you know overnight people yeah yeah and the two of them are just trying to investigate for hauntings before the place gets demolished it's it's a very good i love that movie i like haunting movies yeah I like horror movies. That's why we made one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think in terms of like sort of the the vague, unsettling nature of this movie we're making, it's probably Von Trier. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. And uh, I think we're good. This one, uh, you know, what? surprisingly, while both of our pitches felt like they could easily fit, I felt like this was more challenging than I expected it to be. 
Yeah, I guess, you know, we were trying to avoid doing what seemed the simple obvious. So, yeah, 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 that's, you know, thankfully, at least we were talking and there wasn't a lot of dead air. (laughs) Yeah, that's the one thing you guys don't even understand how difficult that can be for a podcast. Obviously, dead air is dangerous in any podcast. But when your podcast is literally based around the idea of coming up with ideas live, woof. That can be tough, especially the times when we have issues coming up with titles because yeah. we, we will sit in dead air for a while. <laughs> if we weren't friends, this would be a hateful experience. <laughs> Buddies. Awesome. Uh, we have a film. Uh, folks, thanks so much for listening. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this one. Um, we are going to try to get back on track now that I'm no longer sick. Uh, to keep everything up for every two weeks. This episode will air on the 18th. We are filming this on the 17th, so happy St. Paddy's Day if you're listening to this tomorrow. Um, other than that, I don't think I have anything. You got anything, Rob? Uh, I think we're uh, we're all good. Let's uh, Let's cut and print this, baby. Cut, print, go home. <laughs> so until next time, I've been Rob. I've been Nick. And that's what we got. What Do You Got is recorded live at the Cape Swoosh Studios in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Our theme song was written and performed by Trevor Campbell. Additional music is provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. And our wonderful logo was designed by Gabby Weiss. You can find her on Twitter at, at Gabby Weiss. 